The story you're about to hear was told to me in the strictest of confidence. Certain names, dates and locations have been changed to protect that confidence. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the people, places or events that appear in this story, ask you not to reveal any information publicly, out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. My name is David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories Podcast, where we delve into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear new and classic cases of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. One of the many things I've learnt while researching and recording these new ghost stories is not to take things at first value. I've met a lot of different people during the years I've been working on the project. People of all ages and all backgrounds. Some people who are open, easy and straightforward to deal with. Some who were much more challenging. People whose pain and scars were closer to the surface. Or just out there in the open. I'd like to say that I walked into all these encounters without judgment, but I'm not without my biases, and I'd be lying if I denied that those didn't play a part in the way that I listened to and evaluated many of the claims and accounts that I've heard over the years. There have certainly been occasions where caution was appropriate, those cases where I was dealing with someone with, say, addiction problems or mental health struggles but there were people who I'm sure I judged too quickly, people who found it difficult to communicate, people who were anxious or uncomfortable, some who were just eccentric. It's hard to know at this point whether I turned down any cases which might have been promising, based on some of these biases, whether the conclusions I drew were tainted by assumptions rather than just on the dispassionate facts. It's something I believe I've got better at over time. Time and time again I've found myself surprised by people, forced to empathise with subjects who are not, at least at first, easy to understand or warm to, but whose stories, whose personal struggles, I couldn't help but respond to and sympathise with. Everyone whose story is featured on this podcast has been tested in ways that most of us never will be. They've gone through things, real, imagined, or somewhere in between, that I can never truly appreciate what it was like to go through. I won't say that every one of them was necessarily a good person. There have been contemptible characters on this podcast. Some people who have committed terrible crimes. But there are many who have shown incredible strength and overcome considerable adversity. People take time to show who they really are. It's not cut and dry. And while we can, of course, make judgments about people based on what they say and how they behave, what counts most is what people do, and indeed, what they choose not to do. 
I don't want to say any more than that. I'll just get straight into this month's case. It's called Clean Me. It's New Ghost Stories case number 456, and you can hear it in full after these messages. Just a quick reminder, there is an extra bonus episode over on my Substack, a reading of Graham Greene's horrifying A Little Place Off the Edgware Road. You can hear that by visiting newghoststories.substack.com. I also recently discovered that the Q&A section on Spotify existed, so I want to thank you to all the people who have left comments there. I have seen them, and they have all been published. And now, on with the story. I wasn't expecting Keith to show up in the afternoon, and my first thought was that I was in trouble. Keith showing up anywhere is bad news. Him showing up unexpectedly is even worse. Need to talk to you for a second, he said, and he looked serious. Part of Keith's thing is that he's always joking around, trying to be funny. Something really was up. I dropped my tools and walked over to his filthy white van. What time is it yesterday when I saw you at the Polish ladies? He asked. I don't know, 11.30 maybe? And Luke was there, right? Yeah. How long was he there for? After that, I said slowly, I'm not sure. Not too long. Five minutes, ten minutes? At most. Was she giving him money? That's when I knew some shit had gone down. I caught Luke cleaning Lottie's car the day before, and you weren't supposed to do any moonlighting. You weren't allowed to do odd jobs for the old folks, privately, off the company's books. I didn't see anything, I lied. Keith stroked his stubble. It's gone missing, you know. What has? The old Bint's money. That big wad of cash she had. I'd already covered for Luke once. That same day I was coming out of the bathroom and I saw Lottie doling out notes to him to pay for the car wash. She had a lot of money there and she shouldn't have been flashing it around. I didn't say anything about it, but then I bumped into Keith in the hall. He'd just let himself into the house. I had to keep him busy so I started talking really loud so Luke would hear me. Then that daft old lady walked into the hall, carrying the notes just sort of holding them behind her back. Lottie didn't like Keith any more than the rest of us, but she couldn't resist the chance to complain about how long all the work was taking, even while holding all this cash. I saw Keith watch her as she went into the bedroom with it. It's really rare to see people with that much paper money these days. Might report her to the council, Keith had said later. You shouldn't be in sheltered housing if you've got that much cash knocking around. Jesus, these old bags sure know how to put it away. Now that money was gone, and it sounded like Keith was saying Luke had stolen it. Can't believe Luke would take it, I said. He definitely wasn't there for much longer after you left. He could have come back, said Keith. He could have left the front door or the back door unlocked, and that's if he didn't have a key himself. You know he does odd jobs for her, right? I didn't say anything about that. But Luke's such a nice guy, he wouldn't steal from an old lady. Someone's taken it, he said, and it wasn't you, was it? No, of course not. Keith was looking at me intensely. I'd been there all day doing the gardening. Luke had just been there for a couple of hours. 
Come on, Keith, you know I wouldn't. He took a second before saying, Of course not. I know you wouldn't. We heard the sound of someone shouting. Lottie's house was at the bottom of the street, but we could both hear her. She must have been hysterical. Keep this under your hat, he said, and don't talk to Luke about it if you see him. He got back in his van and pulled out the driveway. This time someone had written, also available in white, in the dirt on the side. For once it didn't make me laugh. That was a weird summer, the one I spent stuck between heaven and hell. I should have said to my dad at the start that I didn't want to work with Keith. I've never liked Keith. I've known him since I was a kid and I've always hated him. But him and dad have been friends for years, so I felt like I couldn't say anything bad about him. The first thing dad said after I asked him for a job is, Oh, Keith needs some help down on the pensioner's estate and I just couldn't think of any way to get out of it. Keith is a lot. There's something about him that's off. Maybe he doesn't really get boundaries, or he doesn't understand social situations, even though I think he thinks he's really good with people. He always acts like he's pleased to see you, grins at you in this really creepy way. He makes lots of jokes. That would be fine if they were just dad jokes, but they're often really dirty jokes, and he's like this sweaty man in his 40s. He also mocks people a lot too, right to their face. It's just a bit of banter, you know. Sometimes he'd say things that were really nasty, and that's what I really don't like about him. You know how some people act like they're joking, but they're not joking. It's what they actually think. I never thought Keith was joking. It was always an act. He put on an act because he actually doesn't like people. I can see it in his eyes. There's something just really nasty about Keith. I remember on my first day, when he came to pick me up in his dirty white van, such a cliché, and he said, I'll put you on a good house first, one of the nice old birds. He looked over at me. They're not all nice, you know. Really? I said, smiling awkwardly. Oh yeah, he said, nodding, breathing in, looking like he'd seen some bad shit in the war. They terrorise you, some of these coffin dodgers. Never happy. You have to watch out for them. Joking, but not joking. But then there was Luke. Keith did his best to embarrass me as soon as we met. Luke, who's also Polish was doing the gardening over at this tiny old deer's house. Keith introduced me to them in the most cringe way possible. Bought a handsome young man for you, he said to the old deer. He then turns to me and says, You gotta watch this one. She eats young men for breakfast. She was like 90. She laughed, but I bet she was afraid not to. Keith's a big guy. He then shows me to Luke and says, Green behind the ears, this one. Never done a proper day's work in his life. He slaps me on the back. Don't give him anything too complicated to do. It was so embarrassing. The thing you have to understand about Luke is, and I really have to make this super clear, is that Luke is fit as fuck. That first day he was in tatty denims 
and a sleeveless grey vest, biceps pumping, thrusting his hoe into the soil, bending it back, levering the weeds out, mopping sweat off his forehead. I was nearly speechless. I didn't know shit about gardening when I started, but Luke was patient with me, didn't rip the piss out of me like Keith would have, even when I was trying to cut the hedges literally one branch at a time. He showed me what to do. He put his arms around me, guided me with his ripped body, showed me how to do it properly. It was almost too much. He's the strong, silent type, Luke. At least at first. We didn't vibe right away. I had to take him out of his shell a bit. He used to work most of the day quietly without saying a word. I used to have earbuds, but they kept falling out, so I asked if I could bring a radio. The moment I heard him humming along to Super Trooper while he stoked his chainsaw, I knew we could get along and cross our cultural boundaries. He was just shy, really. He always brought a healthy lunch with him. After going to McDonald's for the first few days, I started to bring my own sandwiches so we could eat lunch together and connect. His bio was that he'd moved to England so he could make a bit of money. This was before the Brexit times. He used to send money back, but he hated being away from his family. So he talked his wife into moving over here. You could tell he really loved his kids. He beamed when he talked about them. One was six and had been diagnosed as dyslexic, so he was concerned he might start to fall behind. His youngest was about to start school, so his wife was going to start working, and hopefully that would pay for extra tuition. But he was worried for his youngest too because he was already starting to forget Poland and wouldn't speak Polish to Luke unless he forced him to. He loved England when he first came here. But now his family had settled. All he could do was think of home. He'd take his family on day trips to English villages at the weekend because they'd remind him of the small villages where he grew up. His kids had got bored of this, so he'd started to take them to castles instead. But British castles, he said, were mostly ruins. Poland has lots of stunning forts, and he took me through tons of pictures on his phone. He was a sensitive guy under his tough exterior. But he was hetero. He would never be mine. Best I could do was to stare from afar, watch while he bent down to pick up his clippings, or wrenched plants out of the soil with his fork. I had a thing with an estate agent from Bista that summer, but I was always thinking of Luke. And when each day was over, Keith's van would still be there waiting, ready to drag me away and take me home. He'd offered to give me a lift back whenever he was on site, and if I saw his filthy van parked on the street, I'd have to wait there for him so he wouldn't be offended. There weren't tons of places to park on the estate, so he often parked in disabled spaces. I'd go and stand by the van to wait for him, and angry old people would come out and yell at me, as if it was my fault he'd parked there. Keith used to say to them, I'll just be here for a few minutes, mate. I'll be back in a minute. And walk away quickly, knowing they'd never be able to catch up with him. This one guy reported him eventually, and Keith was so mad, I remember that he saw the guy a few days after, pushing his wife in a wheelchair, and he turned to me and said, I could just drive up onto that curb and send him to heaven early. 
The only fun thing about getting a lift home with Keith was waiting to see what was written on the side of his van. Keith hardly ever cleaned it, and someone somehow was always sneaking up to it and writing something on it. It always perked up my day to see someone had written Clean Me in the dirt, or Dirty Mine, Dirty Van, or Racist Blackface Van. The idea of some old geezer or granny creeping over there and doing it when he wasn't looking, like a naughty kid. It always made me laugh. If Keith made me wait too long, I used to draw cock and balls in solidarity. That night, Keith was mostly quiet on the drive back. He told me Luke had been suspended. I asked if he'd owned up to it and Keith said no. Your dad's going to want to ask you about it, he went on. You just tell him what you told me and you'll be fine. Dad confirmed that Luke was suspended and would probably be sacked unless the money showed up. I asked if he had any actual proof Luke had taken it. He said no, and when I asked whether Luke could claim unfair dismissal, he said that he was moonlighting, which was against the rules anyway, so he wouldn't be in a strong position to do it. Only me and Luke had been at the house, so unless Lottie had lost it, and it turned up later, either me or Luke had to have taken it. And if I hadn't taken it, it must be him. I got the logic, but I didn't buy it. I just didn't think that Luke was a thief. And he hadn't been there for long after I'd left, so he wouldn't have had time to steal it, would he? The next day I was mowing the lawn a few houses away from the Polish lady, Lottie, and I saw her talking to Bruce, one of Keith's goons. I knew they were talking about Luke because she always talks like she's shouting. Then she went quiet all of a sudden. I looked over and saw she was throwing shade in my direction. Lottie liked Luke a lot. They could speak Polish together, but he also used to wear a small silver cross. Lottie was a Jesus freak and had a little shrine in her conservatory with a big cross statue of the Virgin Mary and photos of all the recent popes stuck on the wall. Lottie had taken against me from the start. Maybe because I'm gay, but also because her garden was badly overgrown from the start, and someone should have taken care of it earlier. That wasn't my fault, I don't control the scheduling, but all I got from her was hate. I had to spend all day gardening in the rain without even a hot cup of coffee after. Luke said if I wanted her to be nice to me, I should agree to go to church with her. She was always asking him about his faith and which church he went to, even though he wasn't really religious. He just wore the cross because it had been a present. He was starting to run out of excuses to tell her. Maybe if I'd gone over there, sworn on the Bible that it wasn't me, prayed for forgiveness for not starting the garden earlier, Perhaps she'd stop staring at me. I was getting frosty vibes from the rest of the crew too. They all probably thought Luke was taking the fall for me. I was the boss's kid so they had to cover for me. Did they still think I'd be working there if I had wads of cash? They'd overlook the obvious villain. Keith. He was there that day. True, not for very long but he'd walked right into that house like he owned the place. Lottie never let him in. He's a manager for the company 
He can get keys to these houses if he wants to. And he'd seen her with the money. He could have come back later, and it probably wouldn't have taken him that long to search for it in her bedroom. When I thought more about it, the way he talked about it with me, it was like he was saying, keep your mouth shut and let Luke take the fall, otherwise people will think it's you, to keep me quiet. Because if I could help him blame Luke, he could get away with it, couldn't he? It was a quiet trip home that night, with Keith trying to make conversation and me basically just ignoring him and giving him one or two word answers. He seemed genuinely offended, kept rubbing the back of his neck awkwardly as we spoke, like he was getting anxious. Maybe he knew that I knew. What was I going to do about it, though? I didn't have any evidence I could show Dad, and he was Keith's friend. He wasn't going to believe me unless I could prove it. I just said a very quick goodbye when I got out of the van. As I walked along the curb to the garden gate, I couldn't help noticing that he didn't drive right off. He just sat there, as if something was bothering him, rubbing the back of his neck again. And just as I was going through the garden gate, I noticed something strange. Someone had written on the side of the van again. But this time, instead of the usual stuff about how dirty it was, someone had drawn something on it. Strange little signs. Small symbols. One was kind of like a star. Some were more like letters, but I didn't recognise any of them. There were seven or eight of them, I think. It wasn't any language I've seen written down. The symbols weren't that big either. When someone writes with their finger on the side of the van, they do it in big capital letters because you can draw them quickly. These symbols were smaller, detailed. They'd been drawn slowly and more carefully. The van started back up and Keith drove on. And I didn't think much more about those marks just then. Keith had wiped them off by the next morning when he came around to pick me up. He announced that morning that I was going to be working with him all day. With Luke gone, he was short-handed and he was promoting me to junior builder and dog's body. I said okay and tried not to look revolted. As the journey went on, I started to wonder if this was some kind of play on his part. Did he know that I suspected him? Was he keeping me close, trying to work on me so I wouldn't say anything about him? We stopped at some red lights and I saw him scratching the back of his hands and his arms. And then after, he was rubbing the back of his neck again. We finally arrived at this two-bedroom bungalow and as soon as we got out of the van, he was scratching himself, scratching around his belly up his back. I saw more than I wanted to. I'm so itchy this morning, he said. An old couple were getting their kitchen replaced so I was going to help Keith tear out the old one. Even I couldn't get that wrong. The husband was asking, pleading with us, to be careful not to get dirt everywhere, because their carpet was new, and that it hurt his wife's back to vacuum. And Keith is nodding along, and all the while he's rubbing his arms and scratching. I wondered if he was on something. The way he was standing there, all jittery, like he was anxious, just nodding and looking like, 
He can't wait to get away. I wondered whether this might explain why he needed the money. That maybe he had a habit, and he'd been really good at hiding it until now. Perhaps it had gotten really bad, and he'd gone full addict, and that was why he needed the extra money. We laid down a trail of plastic to protect the carpet before we started taking the kitchen apart. We worked quickly, unscrewing the doors first and putting the old parts in the back of the van before getting to the more difficult job of taking the units apart. This created a lot of dust. Specks of paint and sawdust and plaster were in the air, and it made things worse for Keith. His arms were starting to go red, and I spotted him lifting up his trousers to scratch his legs too, and his ass when he thought I wasn't looking. At lunch he asked me to go to Boots and get him some E45 cream and moisturiser. I came back an hour later and I couldn't find Keith right away. The kitchen and living room and garden were all empty, so I started to wonder if he'd gone over to one of the other houses to speak to some of the other guys. But then I heard the shower going. Couldn't quite believe it at first. It's pretty cheeky using someone else's shower without their permission. I knocked to check it was him. That you? He said back to me. Are you in the shower? I asked. You get the stuff? Sure, I said. I hear the shower stop and him get out of the tub, and for a second I thought he was going to open the door naked, and I froze to the spot. But luckily he just opened the door a little and put his arm around to grab the boots back. I remember thinking, I hope that old couple burns that towel. I didn't see him much for the rest of that day. He was talking on the phone or going to talk to other people. He left everything for me to do. I was tired by the end, but I didn't look as bad as he did. He was looking so sore now, and he was still squirming, shifting around in his seat while he was driving. I was worried he wasn't paying attention to the road. Might have to go to the doctors tomorrow for this skin thing, he said, scratching under his shirt. Yeah, I'd do that, I said desperate for him to put both hands back on the wheel. What he didn't say was that he wasn't going to pick me up the next morning. That next day I stood waiting for over half an hour before I had to beg Mum to drive me in. I think she must have told Dad because while I was cutting my lawns he showed up and asked me if I'd seen or heard anything from Keith. He'd been trying to call him all morning. He was supposed to attend a meeting at the office but no one had heard anything from him. I told him Keith had said he might be going to the doctors, but that didn't explain why he wasn't answering his phone. I said it was just about a thing with his skin, but Dad started to get really worried. Keith is tied to his phone. He always gets back to you. Nothing had been heard at all from Keith by the afternoon. Just as I'm about to knock off, Dad decided he's going to go over to his place and makes me go with him. It's about a 30 minute drive away, and his flat is above a laundrette. Dad parks up in a yard behind the store, which has a really nasty smell coming from a couple of the skips there. Just the sort of grotty place I imagined Keith living in. He headed up some steel steps, and we walked along this landing, until we got to a black door. Dad tried the bell and knocked loudly. When Keith didn't answer, he bent down to shout through the letterbox, 
Keith, you in there? There was still no answer. Perhaps he's just gone out, I said. Dad tried his phone again. We could hear it ringing from inside. Outside his door, Keith has one of those plastic Victorian lamps. Dad lifted the pointed top off. There was a spare set of keys blue-tacked inside. He pulled them out and unlocked the door. We both felt it right away. The air is damp and the carpet is soaked with water. Dad went into the flat, shouting, Keith, you here? He found Keith's phone face down on the living room carpet. It's coming down the stairs, I said to him. The staircase carpet was very dark. It was wetter than the rest of the hallway carpet. Dad charged upstairs, his shoes making loud, squelchy sounds with each step. I went up after him but stayed a few steps behind. On the landing we can hear a noise. It's this buzzing noise. There's a buzz sound for a few seconds and then it stops with a clunk, then another clunk, and another. And then the buzzing starts up again. It repeats itself. Buzz, then clunk, clunk, clunk. The bathroom door isn't quite closed. Dad went to push it open. And as I go after him, I see water pouring from the bathroom floor and onto the carpet. The water is a pinkish colour. I can see the bathtub as Dad opens the door. It's overflowing with water. It's the shower making all the noise. It was bust, burnt out. It buzzes while trickles of water fall from the head and then it clunks as it seizes up before trying to do its job again. Dad turned and put out his hand to block me from coming in. He shouted at me, Don't look! Call an ambulance! I went back onto the landing to make the call. I heard a squealing sound from the bathroom, so I ducked into one of the bedrooms. After they pick up, I realise I don't know Keith's address, so I had to run downstairs to see if I can find a letter with it written on. They said they'd be there in 10 to 15 minutes. I end the call and everything seems quiet again. I walked to the bottom of the stairs and looked up. That's when I heard a scream. Dad, I said, but not too loudly. I was shitting it. I walked back up the stairs slowly, shaking really badly. There was another squeal as I reached the bathroom. I can see that Dad is on his knees, kneeling in the water. There are smears of blood around the door handle. I didn't touch it as I pushed the door open further. Dad was holding a hand over Keith. He wanted to put his hand on him to reassure him, but he was too afraid to touch him. Because Keith was red raw. He looked like meat, Dad said. It's okay, mate. The ambulance is coming. It's on its way. Keith was beneath the sink in the fetal position. He was shivering. His blood was colouring the water. There were thousands of plucked hairs floating around him and long, thick, curling strips of human skin. I can't get clean! Dad's not the kind of guy to get worked up about things. He's a fixer. He thinks that you can fix everything if you know the right people and if you have the right tools. 
the look on his face that day. He did not know how to deal with that. I didn't like Keith, and I was pretty sure then that he'd stolen that money. But fucking hell. I'd never seen anything like that, and I did honestly feel proper sorry for him. I kept having nightmares about it for the rest of that whole summer. I don't know what did that to him. I think it was for revenge, and I do think that the symbols on the van had something to do with it. I told my dad about them, and he said I was being ridiculous. But it shitted him up too. He just wouldn't admit it. Because what happened to Keith? You don't just snap and start ripping your skin off. That's not how people are. I had to keep the whole thing secret. I never said anything to anyone at work. All they heard was that Keith had gone to stay with his brother because he needed to take it easy for a while. Everyone knew something had gone down, but no one knew anything more than that. And I never found out anything more. Dad never really talked about him again. All he would say after was that he was in hospital getting better and his family was looking after him. Eventually he started telling me that he'd gone to stay with his brother, as if I didn't know the real story. Maybe he did. I never saw him again. But there is one more thing to tell you about. A couple of days after Keith's accident, Dad was driving me into work, and he just drops into the conversation that Luke is back. That daft old cow, she found the money after all, he said. Totally surprised, I asked him, where did they find it? She said it had fallen down the back of the bed. He shook his head. You never know with these pensioners. They drive you crazy. It was good to see Luke back. I went over to say hello and check if he'd been doing okay. He seemed relieved everything had been sorted out and he could get back to work but there was also something a bit weird about him. He seemed nervous, a bit anxious. He didn't have that strong, stoic vibe he'd had before. And it didn't all sit right with me anyway. I knew that Keith's guys had turned that place over trying to find that money. They'd been there searching for hours. If it had just fallen down the back of the bed, they'd have found it. They'd searched that bedroom top to bottom. All I could think was that someone must have put it back. A few days later, I was cutting the ivy around the fence on the house next door to Lottie's. One of the fence posts had fallen out of place, and I could see right through into the garden. And when I looked really closely, I could even see into a conservatory. I could see that crazy Polish lady there, in front of her Jesus shrine. I watched her and I could see that she wasn't alone. Luke was in there with her. They were there, on their knees, and holding hands. Then they started to pray together. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast and want to support what I do, please like, comment or leave a review on any platform and subscribe to hear future releases. You can also support the show by becoming a patron and visiting patreon.com slash newghoststories. 
The show is written and produced by me, David Paul Nixon. If you'd like to read more from me, visit my Substack, newghoststories.substack.com. And you can also find me on Instagram, Threads, Mastodon, Facebook, and the website formerly known as Twitter, at New Ghost Stories. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, be careful what you eat this Christmas. Christmas.